Okay, welcome to Max Planck Florida's Neurotransmissions. Uh, I'm Misha, and um, I have a guest co-host with me today. Uh, hi, Paul. Hey, Misha. Glad to be back again. Um, I'm sorry if I sound really sniffly. Uh, 11 months of a child in daycare, and you'd think like they'd run out of stuff to give you, but it just it doesn't it doesn't stop. Uh, <laughs> uh, so we have uh, a really great. Um, Guest for you today, um, we'll be talking to Brenda Bloodgood. Uh, she is a professor in UC San Diego, um, an associate professor. Uh, assistant UC, professor. Assistant still. professor, right, in UC San Diego. Um, and uh, she works on, uh, well, what do you work on? You work on the LTP in general? Well, I would, so hi, I'm Brenda Bloodgood. <laughs> it's true. I'm from UC San Diego. Uh, my lab works very broadly on plasticity, but I would maybe stay away from long-term from LTP or long-term plasticity. So we are really interested in understanding how an animal's experiences change the way neural circuits are wired up. And this is something that many labs are interested in. We try to take a slightly... Uh, you know, a perspective on it that's not necessarily very common. So we look at how the activity of neurons change the way genes are expressed by regulating activity-dependent transcription factors. And just to translate that a little bit into less jargony terms, um, genes are regulated by proteins. These proteins are called transcription factors, and there are many transcription factors that are only expressed in neurons and that are only expressed in neurons when the neurons are very active. And so these molecules give us um, insight into how evolutionarily important um, changes can happen. So we try to figure out when these transcription factors are expressed, what genes they regulate, and how they change neuronal function and thus circuit function. And what's, uh, I guess, kind of the, the goal of this research? Do you have... Um uh, a near uh, goal and a far goal in mind? Is there like a, we're going to cure Alzheimer's versus, uh, you know, we're going to discover a new protein? Um, yeah, there are goals at many, many time frames. So the short-term goals are very much basic biology goals. So we are focusing on a particular transcription factor um, called NPAS4, and we are really trying to dig into the mechanisms of this particular transcription factor. The reason why we've picked this one is because what we've learned about its function so far is that it's regulated by excitatory input, and then it regulates inhibitory input. And so this is very um, colloquially considered excitatory inhibitory balance. And when excitatory inhibitory balance is not properly regulated, you can have a large variety of neurological problems. So the, the most obvious would be seizures, right? So if there is too much excitation in the brain and not enough inhibition, you have runaway activity and this can cause seizures. Now, there are, there are many more subtle um, variations on this problem, right? So if you look at pathology associated with schizophrenia or abnormal circuit wiring associated with autism, all of these developmental and psychiatric disorders have mismatched 
excitation inhibition incorporated into them. So in the long run, we're hoping that we can understand this basic biology of how excitation regulates inhibition by working through this transcription factor and hopefully develop some new ideas, some new strategies for tackling these much more complicated problems that are associated with developmental and psychiatric disorders. So why specifically did you choose to work on impasse 4 for your own lab? Well, there's always, um, there's always a bit of luck associated with anything. So with, um, with your lab's research plan, you like to tell yourself or tell other people that it's a very, um, that, that you've, you've thought about every possible outcome and that this is the most, um, fruitful way to proceed. But the reality is that there's luck involved with it. And so the first lucky thing was that during my postdoc, we had realized that this transcription factor regulates inhibitory synapses. And I'm a synapse biologist at heart, and so this, this resonated with me. The other lucky thing is that it turns out that this transcription factor is really only induced by excitatory activity and doesn't care about any of the other signaling pathways that induce many of the other transcription factors in this, in this category. And so it was a relatively simple way to start thinking about how activity accesses the genome and then how gene regulation changes neuronal function. So it was really a a simplified problem compared to studying inducible or activity-dependent transcription in general. Right. So it gives you more of a clear labeled line to follow than exactly. a messy jungle to weave through. Exactly. So was that, uh, uh, that was the continuation essentially from, uh, I believe, your post, uh, postdoctoral work uh, yeah. into uh, your work as a PI. How about from uh, grad school and, and even before that, right, from undergrad? Uh, you, you had generally, you were, you were what partially, I believe, a neuroscience major, I'm saying. Yeah, I was yeah. a neuroscience major as an undergrad. So my, my work as a PhD student was very much um, synapse biology. So I, I did a lot of, um, a lot of many experiments looking at the function of individual synapses that are enclosed by dendritic spines. So little membranous protrusions off the dendrites that make a little um, a functional compartment containing a synapse. So as a, as a graduate student, I was a synapse biophysicist of sorts. And when I transitioned into my postdoc, I essentially joined a biochemistry lab. And my, my synapse biologist friends would tease me that I, was, that I was leaving neuroscience and going into cell biology. And I thought, no, this is actually the, um, this is the way to go. Neurons are ultimately cells. And if we if we don't understand, you know, how they have taken cell biology and pushed it to the extreme, then we're never going to understand how neurons work and we're never going to understand how circuits work. So that was really the, um, the biggest jump, thinking about synapses to thinking about gene regulation and transcription factors. But it turns out now that um, the work that I'm doing in my lab we really merge these two schools of thought. So now we think about gene regulation the way a, a synaptic physiologist would think about plasticity. And we think about um, how synapses and how gene regulation use some of the same rules and how the cell biology is really tailored to, um, to facilitate the computations that the neuron performs. 
So uh, it seems like you you figured out your track um, fairly early. I mean, you you jumped around between neuroscience and cell biology, but uh, as far as general synapse work, um, it kept you interested. Um, what was it? This is coming from somebody who uh, pivoted heavily in their fields. I went from uh, you know uh, axon guidance to um, synapse stuff to computer stuff uh, because I couldn't figure out what I liked. What is it that really kept you motivated and kept you interested in the work that you were doing? As opposed to like, did you did you love the bench work so much or was it the idea of what it could mean in general uh, or or trying to figure out the molecular mechanisms? So I've always loved bench work. And this is one of the heartbreaks of being a PI is that I don't do any bench work anymore. And I I miss that a lot. Um for for me at all, I, I love puzzles. I, I love um, biology is just one very, very complex Rube Goldberg machine. And it's fun to figure out the, you know, what's going to happen when this roll, this ball rolls down a track? What is it going to knock over that's going to cause some other cascade? And I, I just, I'm completely drawn to those types of problems. Um, my my initial interest in neuroscience was a lot more, um, you know, I, I decided I wanted to be a neuroscientist when I was in high school, and this was a complete lark because I didn't, um, no one in my family was a scientist. I didn't know anything about what it took to be a scientist. I didn't know what a postdoc was. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, know, somebody, you were so happy back then. <laughs> you know, sometimes being a little bit naive to the path is is a gift, right? Because you don't realize you don't realize all of the oh god, the, an absolutely necessary. Yeah, <laughs> who, yeah. who would do this? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I don't know that I would have um, gone down this path if I had realized all of the obstacles that are in the way. The feudal caste system. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I, I was very naive and would go around saying, oh, I'm going to be a neuroscientist. And my my mom for a long time would call me a neurologist. She didn't, you know, she's not a scientist, right? And I, I would always explain to her, no, mom, I, I only take things apart. I don't fix anything. <laughs> so um, when did you think you were really a neuroscientist? Was it after finishing your PhD, when you got your own lab, when you started your postdoc? Am I a neuroscientist now? <laughs> I think it's always a work in progress, right? You're, you're, um, I feel like my identity is, is multifaceted and being a scientist is part of it. And I was a scientist before, you know, I think when I was five years old, my mom would say I behaved like a scientist. And then becoming a neuroscientist is just a little um, derivative of this label that's part of, you know, I've, I've been a scientist by character since I was born, I think. So it's your state of mind, not the degree you have. I think, I think it is. I think it's a way of, um, of tackling problems. It's a way of thinking through problems. And it's a way of approaching life. Hmm. So another thing that I really wanted to talk about, uh, and, and we've actually never talked about uh, teaching before on this um, 
on this podcast, weirdly enough, even though we interview a lot of professors. Uh, And this came from when uh, I was doing some research on you, and one of the websites that popped up was uh, RateMyProfessors.com. Oh, boy. And you have have a particularly good rating. Um, And I I think the the top three tags for you was that uh, you give uh, extra credit, um, you are caring, and you are a tough grader. Okay. Um, and that seemed to resonate from, from a lot of the comments. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the course that you teach is, um, human physiology. Human is physiology. That right? Yeah. So what's, I mean, you know, to, to everybody listening, uh, our, our grad student audience, our, our postdoc audience, people who really, and you know, a lot of your colleagues and PIs, uh, there are a lot of terrible teachers out there who didn't get the right training, <laughs> right? People get hired for their science really, it's not, true. not, it's not true. for the other thing. Um, College students don't know that. They don't realize that their professors no. like weren't really interviewed for their teaching skills no. at all. They think that we're there to teach. Yeah. They have, oh, God. There's you a guys huge have no disconnect. Idea. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, what's, uh, what would you say, like, what are, what are the keys to doing it? I mean, how do you keep your students interested? Um, I really enjoy history. I enjoy the history of, of how we acquired knowledge. And so when I teach my class... I don't just tell them the facts of what it is, right? It's um, it's interesting that the action potential is a sodium current and then a potassium current. This is interesting. But what's fascinating is the story of how we learned that and the process of going from not knowing something to knowing something. And when I teach my class, I... I bring in as much of that as I can to really try to highlight that that knowledge is dynamic and it's something that is hard fought and that it's when you figure it out it's remarkably beautiful and you can't help but be in awe of how it works right and that you you look at something simple like an action potential and it's actually not simple at all. And you can look at the the crystal structure of a potassium channel and it's and it makes sense how it works. And then you can start to understand how through through evolution you can go from one potassium channel to potassium channels with different properties and that these are used in different cells in different ways. And the the history of how we learn about or how we discover these things. Um, it just makes it, it's just a, it's an incredible narrative. It's beautiful. And so when I teach my class, I show them movies. I, I tell them stories about how something was discovered. And then when we finally, when we finally, whatever, we get to a lot of facts. I cover a lot of facts in my class. But then the facts have, um, they have context and they're much more, um, they're much more salient than just a, a diagram of GPCR signaling, which in and of itself is not necessarily riveting. But the, the stories behind it are really fun. So even in a class as dense as something like human physiology, it's important to describe uh, uh, things using sort of, I guess, a multimodal story. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, as opposed to Excel tables. Which, Absolutely. Uh, well, this is how I learn, right? So it's... it's um, my brain doesn't work by just memorizing a list of facts, right? Everything is contextualized and everything um, that we learn makes sense based on how we, how we frame it. 
So it's when you teach a class, it's no different than that. So it seems like you've got a lot of things you're interested in, like oh, I do. <laughs> history, like experiments, bench work. Um, is there any topic that you get to that you have to teach through the semester? You're like, oh, God, not this again. Um, if you had asked me that two years ago, I probably would have said the kidney because in my, it's a human physiology class. It's front-loaded with neuroscience, which is wonderful. Then we transition into skeletal muscle, smooth muscle, cardiac muscle. And, you know, with all due respect to um, muscle physiologists, muscles are really just kind of simplified neurons. <laughs> and so it's very easy for me to be uh, enthusiastic about that. And then you get to the kidney and it's like, oh, man, really? We've got to go through transport through the nephrons. It's kind of dull. Um but then at some point I had this realization that actually nephrons really just want to be neurons too. And it's all about the movement of ions. <laughs> and so, you know, everything I teach is some derivative of a neuron <laughs> for better or worse. So are, are all your lectures, uh, do you record them and, and share them uh, audio wise with your students later? Yeah. So my lectures are podcasts. Um, I don't archive the podcasts beyond the quarter in part because um, I don't want, this is going to sound really silly, um, but when the next year's students come in, I, I don't want them to know all my stories already. <laughs> right? So part of, part of the art of giving a good lecture is to have, you know, there has to be some tension, there has to be some drama, there has to be a thing that people are dying to know at the end of it. And if they listen to the podcast first, they're not going to come to class. So um, uh, what's what's your take on that? Uh, you know, I remember um, when I was in grad school, when I, when I was in college, nobody uh, taped their lectures, but uh, it was becoming more common in grad school. And when I was in, uh, we had to take a medical neuroscience class, the densest class I've ever taken in my life. And there, everything was straight to tape and, and we could download it online. And it was perfect. Uh, which meant that most of the med students didn't actually show up to class. Everybody mm. listened to online. So um, is there a, a strong argument to be made um, now that we're kind of shifting into this uh, audio recorded world? I mean, is there a value for everybody necessarily to come to class? I think that there is. And I think that the primary value has to do with our ability to pay attention to things. And I think that... Um, we learn best when we're paying attention, which is probably the most obvious thing anybody could ever say. But if you're listening to a podcast of a lecture at home, you're also checking your phone, your roommate's walking in, you're distracted by 20 different things. You know, you start the lecture, you pause it to go put on a cup of coffee or feed your cat or whatever it is you're doing, and you're not really present in the in the moment, the way you are if you go to a lecture. And so I think that there's huge value for being in the room. The other thing is that if you're in the room, you can actually ask me a question if you have a question. And I, I teach a big class, there's 400 plus students in it. And you might think that this is not necessarily the best format for asking questions. But this is also a solvable problem, right? So I've set up a text messaging app on my phone and my students can text me questions during class and I take breaks during class to answer questions. And so if you're just listening to the recording of it, 
you know, you, you're probably not paying attention. And if you don't understand something, you can't ask me about it. Those are really good points. It seems like you put a lot of work and time into constructing your courses to have a great story, to have mm -hmm. something engaging for the students and make it accessible. Because I remember when I took human physiology, they used it as punishment. <laughs> we had a glorified way of them asking us pop quizzes and we had a little stick that we could... Oh, the look. clicker questions. Yes. Yeah. So I do clicker questions, but those are just for bonus points. So this is uh, in the reviews when they talk about bonus points. It's all the clicker questions. And this is also to incentivize people to come to class. So there's no penalty if they get it wrong. There's no penalty if they don't come to class or if they don't answer the questions. But if they do come, they can get some bonus points. So how much time do you invest probably for each lecture? The now? first The first time you've ever taught it. Oh, God. The first time I taught it, it was awful. <laughs> <laughs> it was, you know, a lecture is an hour and 20 minutes, and it would probably take 15 hours to put together a good lecture. I mean, it's really, you know, 10 to 15, depending on the material. And right for the kidney, I don't know anything about the kidney. <laughs> I do now, but I used to not know anything about the kidney. And so first I had to learn it. Then I had to think about what was important for them to know, how to describe it in a way that's intelligible. It takes a long time. I, I want to I just reiterate that for any grad students who might be listening who are asked to TA uh, a lecture to... Um, 15 hours or, you know, give yourself two weeks. That's, that's what, uh, I was told. You yeah. Know? Yeah. It takes a lot of time to do it. Well, you can do a bad job without putting any time into it. Absolutely. <laughs> it's easy to do a bad job. Yeah. So how do you balance all these teaching responsibilities with running your lab? This is a good question. I, <laughs> I that is a work. I don't. In, yes. That is a work in progress. You know, when I, so now when I teach my class, the lectures are done, and every year I, I try to revisit it. You know, there's always a rough spot where you're like, oh, I could do that better. So I try to improve it a little bit, but that takes maybe 45 minutes, right? It's not a big time investment. So now it's much easier. Now the, the biggest time commitment for teaching is that in a class so large, there's a steady stream of problems. Right? There's a steady stream of people that need help or that need guidance. or, And this is something that I continue to put time into. Right? And this is why they think I'm caring, because I, I write back to emails and I, <laughs> and I let people come set up meetings and I talk to people when they need to. Um, but, you know, when I teach it, it takes, it takes a lot of time. So uh, we're almost out of time, but uh, to uh, conclude, um, I just want to talk about, you know, beyond the actual bench work and the, and the uh, results of, of your experiments or, or now the experiments of uh, the people in your lab, yes. you, you are now a, a professional essay writer. It's true. <laughs> um, what are the, what are the actual, what are, what is the value outside of your own lab, outside of, outside of uh, just research that you see for the science being done? Well, I think that, um, that we as scientists need to realize that we, um, we have a, we have a bigger role in society than we're claiming. So we do experiments. We try to discover how things work. We try to do something that hopefully is insightful and informative and, and builds to, to understanding something. But I think that um, 
we we train people to be critical thinkers. We train people to be logical and rational and to make data-driven choices. And this is something that clearly helps us you know, do better experiments, interpret our data more insightfully. But most of the people that do PhDs or do postdocs don't wind up in research. They don't wind up in academia. They wind up in the world somewhere else. And we, um, we can't underestimate the value of that. And so as scientists, the more we, um, the, the more we make ourselves visible to the community at large, the more of an impact the scientific method can have, right? And the scientific method is profound. This, this helps people make decisions in every realm, right? So if you look at um, economic decisions, if you look at, you know, how are we going to rewrite the tax code? How are we going to um, try to get health care out to people? These are, these are data-driven policy choices or should be data-driven policy choices where we collect information about what works and doesn't and then we use that to think hopefully creatively and constructively about how to do the most benefit and the least harm. And so in my, um, in my ideal world in the future, I live in San Diego. I would love to see a biology PhD on the San Diego City Council, you know, helping to make decisions about whether or not we should expand the convention center. And if we're going to expand the convention center, are we going to try to expand outward and reclaim the ocean, <laughs> which is maybe not a good decision in light of um, rising sea levels? Or are we going to expand in some other way? Or if we're going to fix potholes, are we going to do the cheap solution that's going to have to be revisited every two years, or are we going to make the more expensive upfront decision to repave things properly and have it done for 20 years, right? And these are very simple cost-benefit analyses based on collecting data and then looking at outcomes. And this is what scientists do. We do this every single day, and I think we need to have, we need to have scientists out there in the world everywhere contributing to those decisions. Come to think of it, you know, Building this institute two and a half feet above sea level was probably not a very data-driven decision <laughs> in Florida. Well, I have to say, though, I am incredibly happy that this institute is here because I think that scientific powerhouse centers need to be distributed throughout the country. And that, you know, this idea that scientific thinking shapes the way a community works, we need to have scientific powerhouses in every state. Right. We need to we need to push this more and more. It can't just be a few cities on the coast. So I'm I'm Absolutely. incredibly happy you guys are here and I hope you have a lot of sandbags. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for talking with us. My pleasure. All right. Thank you to our guest, Brenda Bloodgood, uh, for talking with us. Um, and, uh, oh, and thank you for, for Paul, uh, for guest hosting that episode with me. We want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in and keeping us afloat. We want to thank the communications department here uh, and Max Planck in general for giving us money to uh, for, for giving us equipment to do this we do not get any money for this I just want to be really clear we are on Facebook so please follow us at Neuro Podcast on Twitter and I am at Salad Zombie 